right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, and uh, there is no debate tonight because I have absolutely defeated Josh and Marcelo. Uh, no, actually, we just had a scheduling mix-up. So tonight, I thought it would be a great time for me to do another episode of Bill Me. We're going to be going through part three of H.R. 5376, Misnomer, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. And we're going to be started on page 246. Guys, in the words of Bon Jovi, we are halfway there, sort of. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to be focusing on a about a hundred pages worth of writings for green energy. If you recall, and I'll link this below, uh, you should be able to check. Got to get my directions right. This corner, my my left, your right. <laughs> Got to get that down. Uh, that'll there'll be a link right there, dealing uh, taking you directly to the conversation Josh and I had with Tony Talks. It's a great conversation about the IRS and the green energy subsidies slash penalties that are being imposed. We're focusing on the green energy subsidies portion tonight. Before I get into that, as I was kind of just re-going over my notes here, which, again, they're uploaded, check below, I realized that there was a few things on Medicare that I missed, which are uh, pretty shocking, and it's you're going to want to check this out. That'll also be linked below and also above. But uh, the few things that it does, it prevents judicial review of what they have determined to be fair market prices, which means I think they're trying to push for their word to be final. Uh, so once those are negotiated and then fixed by the government, you they're not subject to judicial review. They also said that there's going to be a temporary increase in Medicare slash Medicaid cost. And then there's also going to be expansions of subsidies for low income uh, for Medicaid and Medicare. But with the way that the bill is written, it essentially raises taxes to cover those subsidies. So it's redistributing those. And then also they've changed the word, quote unquote, individuals to quote unquote, certain individuals. And from the way that I was reading it, it seems like it limits the coverage. But go back, check those out, see my coverage on that last time. Here's your summary for tonight for green energy. Uh, number one, it finds for a company's failure to comply with new standards, which is going to include steeper fines for what is regarded as intentional disregard for these new things. And it's not even like, hey, we'll offer you this bonus money or these tax credits if you do these things. It's also if you don't follow these new rules, you will be fined. And then if the secretary of labor determines that you are doing this deliberately, then they get to increase those. So it is left up to them. We'll get to that text in just a second here. Uh, there is a credit rate reduction for hydroelectric power. So think of it this way. Hydroelectric energy is where you're using the water to power. The nice benefit for that is it's very consistent because you have rushing streams like the old timey version would be like the old sawmills with the, the giant wheel wells going around them. You can get hydroelectric power that way. It's more consistent than the sun because it's a stream. You can also use dams and such to control that. But they're reducing the credit tax reductions that they were giving out before. They're also increasing the credit for solar and wind-based energies for lower income areas. So there's a couple of things they're doing here to reduce this prevalence. Number one, uh, people tend to go for things that are not solar and wind power just because they're not as consistent. Uh, so for example, in Fargo, North Dakota, where I just came from, wind is very prevalent. So it's pretty consistent, but there's even times where it's not blowing all the time. Then you, you don't get energy. California, uh, both solar and uh, the wind-powered turbines, they're not as consistent, which is why you see the rolling brownouts and rolling blackouts. So they're subsidizing what is pretty objectively the less efficient and certainly less consistent forms of energy. 
And the other tag to this is you will not get the subsidies or the reductions unless those are placed in lower income areas. And not only that, you have to be contracted with them. We'll get to those as well in just a second. There's also going to be subsidies for carbon capture facilities. Uh, we'll get to that on page 302, but they are reducing the incentives. There's also a credit reduction for tax-exempt bonds. Uh, and now there's a credit for energy-efficient homes, but they cap it at $150. So the cost that you would spend to get those in, not only do you have to abide by all of their rules, they're capping your tax credit at $150, and they're also offering a clean vehicle credit. Now, before I get into that, remember that you can massively help this show by liking and subscribing to the channel and giving us a five-star review and helping other people see how great we are move us to the top of those charts. But on YouTube, we're pushing for 100 subscribers. Be one of those. Help us out here. Now, let's go ahead and get briefly into the news surrounding the bill. Uh, the Federal Reserve recently announced that inflation is basically here to stay. So despite the title of the bill... <laughs> It's not going to be reducing inflation anytime soon. And also remember that this was passed by budget reconciliation. To me, one of the more alarming aspects of this is that now it has set the precedent for any political party, whichever one's in charge right now, it's the Democrats, eventually it'll be the Republicans, then it'll go back to the Democrats. It's allowing them to basically pass any legislation they want through bare, simple majority, so long as they have at least a portion of this bill, which they can say, well, that has to do with the budget or taxes, or however they want to tie it in there. So we get to do it this way. It used to be that all of this had to be passed by filibuster proof, i.e. 60% of the vote or more, uh, 60 out of the 100 at least in the Senate. So that might shift the way things are going. Interesting things you're probably going to watch. Now stay to the end if you're interested in seeing how I rate these on legislation efficacy and media Accuracy. So let's go ahead and jump right into the bill. Without further ado, we are on subtitle D on page 246, Energy Security. There's like five parts to this section. It's a lot. I'm going to be doing a lot of skipping, but I highly recommend that you go through and read. Remember, I am human. Uh, go back and comment if I miss something. I'd love to do a follow-up section like I just did with the Medicare, Medicaid section. I realize I missed something. I'm also limited. I try to get this done in an hour or less to be as efficient as possible. All right, part one, clean electricity and reducing carbon emissions, section 13101, extension and modification of credit for electricity produced from certain renewable resources. You can see where this is going with the uh, overview that I gave you. So in subsection A1, they're going to amend it by striking 1.5 cents and inserting 0.3 cents. It's a pretty drastic reduction. Uh, and then they're going to, in section B2, Two, they're going to strike 1.5 cent and they're going to insert 0.3 cents. So not only are they kind of adjusting where you can get these subsidies or tax credits, they're reducing how much you can get. That's going to be a common theme. They're also changing the dates. Uh, it's amended by saying January 1st, 2022 and inserting January 1st, 2025. So this is for the application of extension to wind facilities. Uh, let's see here. I'm not sure if that's going to be, I think that that's like, they need to be built either before or after that section. They kind of jump around back and forth between those, uh, section three year qualified offshore wind facilities under energy credit. It shall no longer apply. So offshore wind facilities, subparagraph E shall not apply. You see where I'm concerned about whether or not this is actually going to do anything because they say, well, we're no longer doing hydroelectric and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to shift that towards wind and solar. And then they say, well, these things will not apply. Uh, you get really lost in this. I'm trying to keep this as straight as possible and keep it as unconfusing as possible. 
But again, if I get something wrong, please comment below. Hopefully we'll get out the right information so that everyone is aware of what your Congress is passing. All right, so it's increasing the credit amount for qualified facilities. Section B here, qualified facility requirements, and this is where they've just laid a whole trap of bureaucratic red tape. A qualified facility meets the requirement of the subparagraph. It is one of the following. Either one, a facility with a minimum net output of less than one megawatt, as measured in alternative current, or two, a facility, the construction of which begins prior to the date that is 60 days after the secretary publishes guidelines with respect to the requirements of paragraph 7a and 8. So I'm assuming once this is passed, ratified by uh, the House of Representatives, signed by the president, and then the secretary lays those out, then we have, they said, 60 days. Option three, a facility which satisfies the requirements of paragraph 7a and 8. So there's your codes. Uh, in general, the taxpayer shall ensure that they, that any laborers and mechanics employed by the taxpayer or any contractor or subcontractor in the construction of any of these facilities shall be paid wages at rates not less than the prevailing rates for construction, alteration, or repair of a similar character in the locality in which the facility is located as most recently determined by the Secretary of Labor. So... When you see something like not less than the rates of prevailing rates, usually you would think, okay, you know, the, the federal government might set certain restrictions that are beneficial, right? Like the Department of Labor, I believe it was, was the ones who said, all right, like you can't work someone seven days a week. You got your five day week. You got your four day work week limited, right? Like there are certain restrictions to enhance the quality of life. These restrictions are not geared at that. From the language, I would say that they're not. The reason being that it, it's not comparing to, like, you need a fair market wage, which, again, remember last time, it's a very subjective phrase. What it's looking at here is not less than the prevailing rates, meaning, like, most common is what I, I would take away from that language. This is union language, which does benefit the people who are in the union, but in overall, it tends to be damaging to the economy. This is something that would continue to throw gas on the inflationary fire that we're seeing right here, because what do we need to be able to like not go into a recession? Well, we're going to need more jobs, right? We, we need our, our, our jobs to be higher. Uh, the unemployment rate needs to be low. And also your wages ideally will outpace the inflation. They're not doing that right now. Well, this is fixing the markets so that artificially, sure, of course, uh, you've got a few select laborers who will be able to do this, but there's going to be fewer people who want to do this when they can't afford the price. Think of it this way. Uh, if you wanted to paint your house and now you don't have extra money and you're having to choose between redoing your house and buying groceries, what do you choose to do? Well, most of us go into survival mode. And that will likely be what happens, which means that overall we will probably see a drop in the amount of people who are employed in these specific areas. We really need to be going the opposite direction if we want to be getting out of the economic downturn, out of this inflationary spiral. The big reason that this happens is because of this language here. It's limiting the free market. They're basically booby-trapping everything that could happen, removing the free market capabilities and saying, we're going to artificially restrict this. What that means is that you, like, so for example, when it comes to unionization, if there are unions and there are volunteers, like if I want to be in a union, I can pay my dues and, then and, and work with them, that's fine. But if I don't want to be involved in that, I can still work. That tends to have more benefits than if everything is unionized because then it is no longer I can work if I want to. It's you can no longer work unless you're stamped off on by the union. So there are no independent contractors in the term of being able to like be truly self-employed. They have to be overseen by the union, which fixes the rates, which again pushes us to what I mentioned before. People will pick and choose in the market. Do I have the money 
for this? Is this where I'm going to put my money? And when the payoff is so low, like if they were like, we'll give you a crap ton of tax exemptions, companies would be like, great, let's do this. But when they're limiting that and they're doing heavy oversight, that tends to be a recipe for them to stagnate and not do that. So they're limiting the free market with that language, particularly right here, Secretary of Labor. It is determined by the Secretary of Labor, but that is one person and that is at their discretion. That's going to be a common theme throughout this bill. Subsection B, correction and penalty related to failure to satisfy wage requirements. And this is where if they were to say, we'll give you these tax breaks, if you do these things, that's the carrot. They're enticing you to do something, trying to get you to do it voluntarily. This is the stick. They're going to fine you if you don't comply. So they're going to penalize you if you don't put in these energies. And if you don't do it the way they tell you to, then they're also going to penalize you. That's the way that this is set up as like almost a perpetual spiral of kind of narrowing you like the, the cattle fences to get you down a specific chute. Spoiler alert for those who didn't grow up on a farm, they get castrated at the end of that. Respect to any laborer or mechanic who has paid wages at a rate below the rate described in such subparagraph for any period during such year, such taxpayer, uh, number one, makes payment to such laborer or mechanic. And there's more details here. And it, it basically goes on to say um, they're substituting the language six percentage points out for three percentage points. Basically, what they say here, if you read closely, is if I voluntarily wanted to make less, right? So think of it this way. I did a lot of contracting. I still do it on the side sometimes when I have time. It's not in the school year. I put in a bid. I say, I will paint your house $2,500. That includes material. Let's say that that's the bid that I give. And then uh, Joe over there says, well, I'll do it for 1500 Well, Joe chose that price. He wants to make less of a profit to get the job, and he's done what's called underbidding me. Well, now the government would basically be saying, except for this section here, well, you can't do that. You cannot go under what we've determined is a fair rate. This is why I say this is unionization in a sense. So the government is not only setting those restrictions, they're going to be making money off of these fines because the money doesn't go to the person who, uh, you know, someone might like Josh, Josh would probably make the argument. Well, this is good because it's, it's raising the wages people are being paid. Well, you would think then if the government really cared about these people, then they would find the quote unquote greedy capitalists here who are taking advantage of these people and they would give the people who are taking advantage of the money, but the government is pocketing that money now. So in right here, after the Roman numeral two makes payment to the secretary of the penalty in the amount equal to the product of either $5,000 or to the product of $5,000 multiplied by the total number of laborers and mechanics who are paid wages at a rate below the rate described in the paragraph we just read. So if I don't pay what the government has determined to be the quote unquote fair market value, I will then pay a fine of $5,000 for every single one of the subcontractors essentially that I got to do that job. It's a pretty steep fine. Now for large corporations, they can eat that cost. Your mom and pop stores, your average Joe's, we will not be able to do that. So think of small businesses. If they, let's say I get a great idea and now they've set building, uh, requirements like you can't have a business if you're not reducing your carbon emission because that's another thing when you combine this with other bills we get into this issue where they say well you can't have a company if you're not quote-unquote green enough or people go on strike against you and say well we want on a national level you to have a low carbon footprint which requires you doing these things and now they've set the guidelines through this bill this is how you do the things 
So now let's say I'm like, you know what? I really care about my carbon footprint. I would really like to do this. And now I can't afford to do it at the, the market price that the government decided. Now I'm going to be fined. So really what it's doing is it's going to be pushing us towards a fixed market where the people who are in the know, who know the people and have the money uh, to do the things are going to get stuff done. You tie it up in bureaucratic red tape. Again, this boils down to less in the market for us. I can no longer pick up a side hustle. Can't, I don't know, what became really popular during COVID was like picking up like a side baking business or something like that. And now if you need a physical store because you've done well enough to need a physical location with employing employees and stuff like that, if you can't afford this steeper price, you're, you're pretty much going to be shoved out the door. Uh, so if the secretary, I think this is the right paragraph. Let's see here. Intentional disregard. Yes. If the secretary determines that any failure described in that clause um, above, if it's intentional and that's at their discretion. So the secretary just says, you know what? Yeah, you did that on purpose. Uh, you get a $10,000 fine for each infraction, like every subcontractor instead of 5000 now we're really talking about racking it up. And, and, and here's just a little thing you might not know about the amount of subcontractors it takes. If I just wanted to fix up a house or like renovate a building, unless you have a jack of all trades, and, and that's usually not the case. Usually you have to have a specific person for each one. Uh, you need a drywall guy. You need a plumbing guy. You need an electrical guy. You need a flooring guy. Uh, you need a painting guy. You need, uh, probably, depending on the ceiling and what you do, probably some kind of specialty for that. Uh, brickwork, like, everything is a specialty. And, and there are people who are jack-of-all-trades, very good at their job. But generally speaking, you subcontract out to each of those niche people, especially with how saturated the market is right now with business. If you wait for a jack-of-all-trades guy, you might not get it done as quickly. So all of that is going to be affected by these fines because all apparently it's going to there, – there's no – layout here for due process or anything like that. Now, they might have it in another bill that I don't have knowledge of, but anytime they just say, yeah, it's going to be the secretary or, you know, some figurehead like that, that, that personally bothers me, but comment below. Tell me what you think here. All right. Participation. Each taxpayer, contractor, or subcontractor who employs four or more individuals to perform construction, alteration, or repair work with respect to the construction of a qualified facility shall employ one or more qualified apprentices to perform such work. So not only have they restricted where uh, you can do your business um, and how you need to do your business, they've restricted how the subcontractors can do their business. You have to have a certain number of qualified apprentices. So not only do you need, like, I don't know, let's just say I want to do this myself and I want to do it all myself. I have to employ people who are considered apprentices. And then they, I'm, I, I believe they lay out. The rules for that but they they tend to really pigeonhole who can do this and a lot of times it's going to go off of especially as they start tying it into like lower income areas what they tend to do is they tend to push more of the affirmative action agendas there's nothing necessarily wrong with trying to diversify the workplace however when you have this many restrictions and you also require uh the certain amount of employments and then you restrict who you can employ we don't usually see an uptick in the amount of work that's done employment rates tend to go down and productivity tends to go down it's not going to make us better case in point why i'm saying this bill is not going to reduce inflation despite the name of the bill can't just slap a label on it and have it be so for individuals because they say taxpayer all of us are taxpayers just at different levels 
you will be fined $50 multiplied by the total labor hours for which the requirement described in, in that above uh, that paragraph was what it took you. So let's say I contract 100 man hours. Say we knocked it out in 10. Uh, let's say I could knock it out in 10, 10 hour days. That's 100 man hours. Uh, and then let's say that I, you know, knock it out in two days. 100 man hours, that'd be 50 man hours. If I had four guys working for me plus myself, that's five of us. We work a 10 hour day for two days. That's 100 man hours. If I didn't meet their requirements of the quote unquote apprentices, I would have to pay $50 times a thousand or times times those hundred contracted hours because it's the total labor labor hours so i assume that, and based off that language it's the cumulative hours that we put forth on the bid for the job uh yeah massive red tape that we've got going on here and then you're limited uh you have to basically <laughs> if the if they call you out on this you basically have five business days after they file this to respond and then intentional disregard, again, instead of $50, it is $500 for every contracted hour that you are considered to be in violation. Again, it goes back to just the secretary's discretion there. Uh, I am unfamiliar and unaware of any restrictions or rules on like what the secretary can decide. A lot of these bureaucrats, as they go higher up, they have massive massive discretion. Uh, Ron DeSantis recently, as the governor, uh, he basically removed, this is, uh, I'm not going to take us too far down, but basically he said this state prosecutor is not doing their job. Removed them. He was allowed to do that. That is how much discretion the governor has. The, the further up you go, the Secretary of Labor, etc., they have almost unlimited like outside of like severe burden of proof quantifiable you are you are abusing your power most of the time they get to do what they want and then you also have to have someone who's willing to prosecute so mark my words if you get a secretary that wants to go down this path i.e wants to collect tax dollars through fines they'll do it here's your regulation and guidance the secretary shall issue <laughs> The secretary is the one issuing the regulations or other guidance as the secretary determines necessary to carry out the purposes of that entire section that we just read, including regulations or other guidance, which provides for requirements for record keeping or information reporting for purposes of administering the requirements of this subsection. So you've basically given the secretary a blank check and I'd love to say that they're not going to be politically motivated. I'd love to say that they're not going to be uh, just pressured to collect a bunch of fines to fund just the the boondoggle of spending that our congressional members have been blowing out the budget with uh but history would have me believe otherwise so we're going to skip down now these are basically all of your boring definitions read them uh, i'm on page 266 now for those listening on the audio only version uh credit reduced for tax exempt bonds now, traditionally, I don't, I, I didn't get a chance to look into how these bonds specifically are done, but like war bonds in particular, it's like, okay, uh, we need someone to buy our debt so that we have cold, hard cash so that we have the money that we need for this effort. 
And a lot of times they say, okay, like these are going to be, you don't have to pay taxes on these. Or like, you know, there, there's some kind of an enticement to get people who have a lot of physical money, liquid assets, etc., to buy into these bonds. And it looks to me from the language that they're doing away with that now because you can no longer basically have that as a tax write-off. They're going to reduce that. They're reducing it by as much as 15%. It's a pretty big drop in the amount that you can. So they're basically not only have they uh, completely castrated the value of your dollar, they're also reducing because like a lot of times once people don't have as much buying power through their dollar, when they have a lot of good money and the people that we're talking about here are the ones who have a lot of money who are going to invest in the economy, i.e. the ones who will help keep people employed, get those businesses started, your startups, etc. and get the backing behind those. When there's a volatile market like they're creating here, they're less likely to do that. And on top of that, uh, they will no longer invest in things like bonds where the government's going to get their money uh, to be able to fund other programs as well because you've reduced how attractive that rate is. And now right here on page 267, we have the elimination of credit rate reduction for qualified hydroelectric production and marine and hydrokinetic renewable energy. Again, I told you uh, in the outline that we were looking at a more... I don't know that it's better than solar and wind, but it is more consistent because you have a little bit more control over those things. Like I mentioned, you can use dams and now they're reducing that. They're trying to push us towards solar and wind. And they're also limiting right here. It says it shall, th these restrictions and the amendments here shall apply to facilities placed in service after December 31st, 2021. Hello. Anything that goes into place, uh, even while this is, it, it, it will even allow for the retroactive application here and and this the audacity here just blows my mind you'll see a lot of this right here credit reduced for tax exempt bonds the language following that is pretty consistently quote the amendment made by subsection in this case h shall apply to facilities um and then uh which begins after the date of enactment of this act so they're like limiting this and they're reducing the bonds now we have the extension and modification of energy credit. This is where they're going to talk about, oh, here's all the restrictions. And they're basically writing you new tax codes for how you're going to be able to get write-offs based off of whether or not you're quote-unquote green enough. So they're changing it from 30%. So right here, base energy percentage amount. It's amended, uh, striking 30% and inserting 6%. Uh, this clause, 10% and inserting instead 2%. Uh, paragraph 5A2 by striking 30% and inserting 6%. And then they have right here outlined the phase out for certain energy property. So if your property was being used, let's say it housed a wind turbine, etc. Uh, it looks like they're trying to phase out at least in this specific section for uh, the hydroelectric portion. So let's say, uh, for example, you wanted, you, you, you've got a big tax charge coming in based off of how much money you made and you could basically write a portion of that off in the tax codes previously based off of whether or not you put in like a hydroelectric dam on your land they're now reducing whether or not uh not not that you can't do it but it will not be quite as tax beneficial when something is not tax beneficial meaning that it's not used to kind of count against your taxes people are less likely to do it because you have to remember here also, uh, if I want to put in one of these massive things, it costs a bunch of money. And if, you know, for example, when we get down to the taxpayer portion, if you want to put in like solar panels and energy efficient doors, blah, they got a whole list that costs money because they're so efficient. They're more expensive. Like, man, I think even just like 
not like your your farmhouse single pane windows, but like replacing decent sized windows. It's like three grand a window. There's a massive bill, and like you can argue for all the ways you'll save money, including potentially a tax write-off, but you're spending money to save the money. People are less likely to spend the money when you're not saving money based off of your, your tax exemptions. That's another issue we'll have here. And remember that as I get into my efficacy. So one of the reasons I don't think it's going to be very, uh, it's not going to have a high level of efficacy because you've reduced the incentive for people to do this. It's not that it wouldn't be great if all the people did it. It's that I don't think anybody's going to do it because we're either too poor to, or the people who are capable of doing it, they won't be incentivized to. And it, so it excludes things like you can't have a thermal energy storage property. It shall not include a swimming pool or a combined heat and power uh, system property. These are your restrictions. A uh, few things that are qualified here, like a qualified biogas property. It's just a giant piece of red tape. Now we have coordination with low income housing tax credit. And the important thing you're going to want to note here is that they're not just saying that, you know, some of these things are only limited to those areas. It's also saying if you don't meet enough of their uh, requirements, you won't get it even if you go to this area. Which means that if I would like to go to this area and I'd like to help this impoverished area and then I, for some reason, cannot meet all of their criteria, I'll no longer be incentivized to. So keep that in mind. Uh, shall be paid wages at rates. Again, so same language as before. Any of these building, any of the building done on these sites has to meet all of the, I'm just going to start calling it a union. So if you can't afford the union rates, then it's no longer it won't count and they might not even let you do it we'll see uh subsection b correction and penalty related to failures to satisfy wage requirements again it's the same language you're again penalized if you're thought to be uh more brazen in your disregard uh here we have the increase in credit rate for energy communities which means that if you have an energy community they're what they've decreased was your tax profits for they will increase them when they get to i mean granted with how low they were before that could mean anything and their language later on doesn't seem to make me think that they're really increasing the incentives here the secretary shall here's your regulations and guidance again the secretary shall issue such regulations or other guidance as the secretary determines necessary so he answers or she answers to themselves to carry out the purposes of this subsection including regulations or other guidelines which provides for requirements for record keeping again same language as before just note that the secretary oversees literally all of this and here it is again increase in energy credit for solar and wind facilities placed in service in connection with low-income communities but it's not just saying hey we will add this it's pretty much saying we will restrict it to only these communities based off of all of the drawbacks that they wrote in the earlier portions of this bill this term confuses me uh, environmental justice solar wind capacity limitations allocated to such facilities like it, 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 they're not focused on even when they say you know we're trying to, to lower we're trying to, to lower the carbon footprint when they limit it to environmental justice i do have to question whether or not they're limiting it too much and we're no longer seeing the widespread results that they were claiming because there's not enough buy-in at that point your maximum net output in these facilities has to be less than five megawatts. I start this section here because the only way you get it is if it's located in a low-income community or Indian land or, or on Indian land. Uh, and, and that is also interesting to me. Did we ask if the Indians were interested 
in these types of things um, because I don't know. I seem to remember that when we were talking about the issues with the carbon area, the land was sacred. It shouldn't be desecrated. I don't know. Uh, comment below if you happen to know whether or not the native community is interested in buying into this or if that's just a platitude they've thrown out there. It also has to be part of a, part of a qualified low-income residential building project or a qualified low-income economic benefit project. So that language right there is what really limits my belief that this is going to be effective, specifically because it has to be part of the qualified, not just, not just a low income building project it has to be a qualified one. So your building has to already pre-qualify under these statutes. You have to contract in a qualified way. And then it also has to benefit. And, and like, it seems like you almost have to show that, that metric that will do so. So I don't know. It, there, a lot of red tape here. Then we have you know, about like two page two hundred and ninety. It's like we're on two ninety nine right here. It was a few pages earlier. It talks about the construction of carbon capture equipment. This is basically where they say that the carbon is the issue contributing to the global warming. So we're going or to the climate change. I guess they changed it to now. So we're going to capture this and like basically like destroy it, uh, like seek and destroy. Here's the limits here. It has to capture not less than 18,750 metric tons of qualified carbon dioxide during the taxable year for it to be considered tax exemptable under the new statute. So basically, you're going to have to be up to code. Now, it is important to note that the EPA was sicked on the uh, oil refineries and such, which is part of the reason that we had a restriction. One of the many reasons that we had a restriction in oil and gas and why your prices went up. If you lived in the Midwest and you had to deal with higher uh, natural gas prices for heating during the winter, and if you're driving, literally all of us pretty much, uh, then your gas prices went up partially because the EPA was sicked on them because yes, the Biden administration did eventually backpedal and say, well, we'll give you these fine. You know, we need the gas and the oil, whatever you can drill. But they also simultaneously unleashed the EPA and the EPA basically had unilateral power to say, well, your buildings are not up to code, but not, or, you know, your, your facilities are not up to code. But not only that, it's not just that they could shut you down if you weren't. It was that they shut you down while they investigated you. And Lord knows that the federal government and the federal agencies do not move quickly. So they pretty much shut all these facilities down, reducing the amount of refineries that were available. I can't imagine that it goes any different with any of the other things that we have. Uh, that they're they're trying to subsidize here because you will have to be checked on and I'll get to the process a few hundred pages from now and I keep skipping because there's so much in here so much power just completely delegated to these three letter agencies credit reduced for tax exempt bonds again under this section like literally under every section they're reducing uh, the tax credit I don't know by how much precisely um, then we've also got zero emission nuclear power production credit so if you have nuclear power that is zero emission, then you'll get some credit here. Uh, but it has to be a qualified nuclear power facility. And they outlay they lay out what that is. Uh, here is some of it. A qualified nuclear power facility is defined uh, is is a result of any federal, state, or local government program for in whole or in part the zero emission, zero carbon or air quality attributes of any portion of the electricity produced by such facility. It's basic definition for you there. So they are subsidizing those, uh, although it doesn't seem like they're subsidizing as much and they're not pushing it as much. And if you recall, uh, if you paid attention to the 
the debate that Josh and Tony Talks and I had, uh, part of it's because people are pretty afraid of nuclear. Like, that's kind of like the boogeyman, even though we've gotten to a point now that that's not really something that needs to be the case. Uh, but part two here, we have the clean fuel cells. If I, I think we only have three parts to cover today. Uh, but the fuel cells basically is biodiesel and renewable diesel credit. So they basically understand that we're not going to completely switch over. So then they throw out... Uh, well, you'll get a tax subsidy or less penalized, depending on where you're at in the bill, uh, for using ones that are considered like cleaner or like more natural. So like the biodiesel instead of diesel. And the amendments made by this section shall apply to fuel sold or used after December 31st, 2021. So that is basically, I mean, all of them now. You also have an extension of second generation biofuel incentives. So... Let's see if I can quickly find what those were. But whatever they were in the previous statutes that make a lot of reference to them, they would um, basically extend them. The number of gallons, gallons of sustainable aviation fuel in such a mixture. So, like, this also includes, for like, aviation. And one of the things you might want to think about is, like, at least small planes like crop dusters are obviously used for agriculture and stuff. So if they're giving these farmers subsidies, that could be beneficial, although it's uh, the sum of $1.25 plus the applicable supplementary amount with respect to such sustainable aviation fuel. Now, I'm not an expert on what the fuel costs, but typically more natural uh, and biodiesel type things tend to cost more. So are you offering enough of an incentive for the farmers or whoever is using these to really care enough to transition over. That's going to be an important question, again, leading into how efficient and like the level of efficacy that this bill winds up having. Sustainable aviation fuel added a credit for uh, alcohol fuel, biodiesel, and alternative fuel mixtures. So that must have not been the case before. So if you can use sustainable aviation fuel, that's great. Another thing to remember is, uh, well, think of it this way. Older vehicles are cheaper. Older planes tend to be cheaper as well. So can older planes use those? And I think that, you know, we see the Biden administration and a lot of the appointees that he's put into these different areas, including um, like at least cabinets for like energy efficiency and stuff like that. They're like the point is that this hurts. The point is that gas prices go up. The point is that natural gas prices go up. So like oil for cars and gas for heating and stuff. So I can't help but wonder if they also mean here that the point is that they're only giving the subsidies to what they've considered to be the like more energy efficient, greener energies here. But let's say I'm a farmer. I don't have a lot of money. I, you know, my, I, my family and I scrap to get the plane that I need or whoever this is. If my plane can't take the energy that they're doing and then you penalize me for that, plus I don't get the subsidies. Like I think it, to me, it seems like the purpose is to get to the end goal regardless of who is hurt along the way, including you and I, because let's say this does affect the farmers in the way that I'm thinking it does to the degree that I'm thinking that it does. That affects how much your your food is. Like, let's say I can get biodiesel to transport the chickens so that we get chicken breasts. Well, if I can't afford the fines and such, and then I just can't be a chicken farmer, now there's fewer chickens being shipped out. So there's less supply for the demand. And remember, inflation on its face value is too much money chasing too few goods. That's what we have right now. And then one of the other issues we have right now is that the like market, because of its tenuousness, it's becoming people are not spending quite as much like they're trying to hold on to stuff. So like there's just a bunch of problems here. That's just a hypothetical of how this could play out. I'm not saying that it will, but, you know, 
by me coke if i'm right all right uh clean hydrogen they're giving credit for production of clean hydrogen it's pretty straightforward basically like your hydrogen plants you know you're you're generating some form of clean energy they're giving a, a subsidy for that that doesn't affect the everyday person really because <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong but you're probably not building a hydrogen dam or anything like that outside in your backyard i uh, know i'm not uh credit reduced for tax exempt bonds again same language they're reducing it they're pretty much trying to say, uh, here's the carrot, we'll dangle a small incentive here, and then the stick is we have completely chopped off the hands and the feet and completely castrated your ability to use the other stuff, because we'll find you into the ground. Like, that only will it be more expensive, we will find you for using it. There's now a denial of production credit, so let's see here, no credit shall be allowed under Section 45V or Section 45Q for any taxable year with respect to any specified clean hydrogen production facility or any carbon capture equipment included in such facility. Now, that is what I have highlighted that because that's what confuses me. Did, did, did I not just read that they were offering an incentive for carbon capture and for also hydrogen? And now they say that there will be, uh, for the taxable year, there's not going to be a production credit. And I think that the thing there is that like, for what it's producing, they won't give it to you, but I don't know. It's confusing and they seem to write one thing and then headline it and then chop off uh, at the knees, any power it would have had in another section of the bill. Regulations. Again, the secretary is the one who gets to regulate it, and the secretary is only answerable to the secretary. Now we have part three, clean energy and efficiency incentives for individuals. This is the really good stuff. Really good. And by really good, I mean it doesn't do jack squat. Uh, so for individuals, there should be allowed a credit against the tax imposed by this chapter for the taxable year and amount equal to 30% of the sum of the amount paid or incurred by the taxpayer for qualified energy efficiency improvements installed during such taxable year. Uh, and the amount of the residential energy property expenditures paid or incurred by the taxpayer during such taxable year. So think about it this way. At the end of the year, if you are a property owner, you have to pay property taxes. And actually, property taxes are usually leveled at like the local level, like those are how schools and such are funded. So I don't even know that this is like a permeable pot where you can say, okay, yeah, I would have paid this so then I can count it against the federal government. It really just depends on what else they changed in the tax year. But you can get uh, up to equal 30% the sum of what you paid. So if I paid... I don't know, keep it real simple, 100 bucks to fix this, I can get up to $30 back. So I'm still paying $70. So again, this bottom line, it goes back to who has the money to do this. And when we're in a recession going in, you know, uh, and there's inflation out the wazoo and stuff, I don't know that this is really going to help people. So again, this is not the win that the Democrats are opposing for several reasons, but one of which is that you're limited by the amount of money people can actually spend when they're in a recession. Despite what they say, we're in a recession. So here's the things that qualify. You've got windows. Uh, you cannot get more than 600 back. So like I said, uh, windows are hella expensive right now, especially after inflation. Uh, you get 600 back max. Uh, doors, it's going to be 250 or 500 in the aggregate with respect to all exterior doors, your heat pumps. So I... I I don't know why I said 150 earlier. There's 150 that I highlighted somewhere. It must have been to a specific thing. But they're really, you, you got a whole list here of things you can spend your money on and get a tax back. So, hey, let me put it this way. Here's where it can be a win and you can leverage this. And uh, although this might be, you know, getting me accused of not paying my fair share in taxes, but let's say that you're going to have, you know, a large amount of taxes at the end of the year and you have the money to redo your home in certain capacities. And you're like, well, 
I was going to put these more energy efficient ones in any way. Why not have the government subsidize some of it? Then great. Go for that. That's a way to capitalize on that. Because another thing that is nice, at least about some of these more energy efficient things, uh, is that, you know, you'll you'll pay less on your heating and cooling bills. So there are wins and I would look at it in the grand scheme of things. But again, looking at it in the grand scheme of things, I don't think this is going to be the win that the Democrats are claiming that it is on so many levels. Uh, but for one example, here, I, I live in an air, uh, in, a, in a building that has uh, it's like the old wooden farmhouse doors. Those are not only not as secure, they're also not as energy efficient. Like they don't seal out the, the weather uh, like the metal doors do. Fun fact, if you didn't know that, if you didn't ever notice that about your doors, uh, exterior doors are really supposed to be like metal based, even like the really nice fancy ones because they're more secure. And then also, you know, if they're, they're doors that have better sealant around them and stuff like your weather stripping and things, then you're, you're going to, you're going to save more energy w window panes. You get the double pane with tinted, much more energy efficient. Um, I know my family put in like a, a wood burning stove at one point to offset uh, part of their heating bills. Like there are ways that you can reduce your bills. It's just a question of how much is this actually going to help. Okay, so you got home energy audits. And this is what threw me off. It says the amount of the credit allowed under this section by reason of subsection A3 shall not exceed $150. Home energy audits. It's amended by striking and in the end of the paragraph by striking the period at the end of the paragraph is just jargon and language on the amount paid or incurred by the taxpayer during the taxable year for home energy audits. Is it just me or does that sound like you can't get more than 150 back in total? I don't know. We're getting pretty close to the end. Uh, there is one section that deals with uh, like vehicles and I want to cover that and then we'll end. Well, we'll go to my my ratings and then some of the questions in the watch list. Uh, here's your residential clean energy. So, you know, they're taxing the corporations at a higher rate. Again, remember that they set that at $400,000 taxable income for the corporation, which is not a lot. Because if you think about it, if you're even like a relatively small corporation and you're paying, uh, you know, a handful of employees a decent salary per year, like let's say anywhere from like fifty dollars to $70,000 a year, and you have enough to, uh, you know, to, to offset all of your overhead costs, plus pay yourself a salary, like most businesses are probably making 400000 Like if they're a legit full-time business, not like a side hustle, not like, you know, hey, I blew up and I got really successful doing this small thing that I, I developed as a skill. I'm talking like an actual, you know, full-blown, I employ other people business. They're probably making close to, if not more than 400000 a year. So there's far more companies going to be taxed and then penalized for this type of stuff than you're probably thinking. Energy efficient corporate buildings, Prevailing wage requirements is basically a reiteration of before, except they're looking at it at like the individual level, individual taxpayer level. You have definitions for like the qualified building. It's going to be one that's located in the U.S. Sorry, guys, there's no leaving the country and offsetting the taxes that way. It was originally placed in service not less than five years before the establishment of the qualified retrofit plan with respect to such a building. And then you've got the qualifying final certification. Baseline energy use limits. They've got their other definitions. You got to coordinate with different people. It's a lot of red tape being put into place. Mark my words, we're going to have one of the slowest growing economies until we get the hell out of this. And by get the hell out of this, I mean get the hell out of this uh, specific tax code. Like we need either this Congress or a freaking new Congress to pass less restrictive policies that will open this back up. 
or else we're not going to see this. Um, I, I really think we'll see more stagnation. I, we can get out of it for various other reasons. I'm not saying the, oh, that's the only way we can get out of stagnation and inflation. But I don't think that we're going to see the same amount of growth that we saw prior to COVID. Um, that, that record growth was in large part because there were so few restrictions on what businesses. You, you had everything from the tax uh, reductions for businesses so they were able to employ more people. Like There's a whole list of things that allowed them to just be less regulated. And now we've moved into an era that it is, again, much like under the Obama administration, significantly more regulated. This is the last section. Part four, I believe, is the last one. Clean vehicles. They basically have a list of vehicles uh, like qualified plug-in electric drive motor. Like they, they basically your, your EVs pretty you know expensive not necessarily something that just anyone can afford to purchase and they're giving a tax subsidy well ironically enough guess what happened uh, <laughs> this is really messed up so in layman's terms the government basically levied a tax on like let's say ford motors i don't remember which one it was i want to say ford was one of the two but there were two motor vehicle companies who they're going to fall under the taxes because they sure as hell make over four hundred thousand dollars per year and they're being heavily taxed then under this new code so that you can give out the subsidies because money when you're given money by the government it never comes for free if you don't have to pay into it somebody else does in this case these companies did so what they did was they raised the price of their inventory so if you want to go buy one of their cars now it's raised the exact amount basically that the subsidies that were that came out so if you were gonna let's say you were given i don't know keep it simple a thousand dollars towards a qualifying ev they raised the evs a thousand dollars because they were taxed to give you those subsidies so this is a giant shell game where the government is moving your money around they make you and i feel like we've got to win the companies have to front the bill through this specific legislation so they raise it so not only are you getting less buying power with your dollar because of the way that they're doing this it's also not actually saving you anything and yet it's passed off as a win so what you're seeing in the background here as i'm scrolling if you're watching on the live stream is i'm going through uh it's basically all of all of your your cars so this is going to be posted with the highlights yeah again there's new it's just outlining what specific cars so here's what we're going to do we're going to move into the time when ryan talks about his ratings legislation efficacy honestly i'm gonna give this one a 0.5 uh, the reason being that just I was just really getting annoyed the more that I read this because between the shell games where they're redistributing uh, the money that we've earned, destroying our buying power, and then also limiting who's likely to take them up on these subsidies and also penalizing people who I don't think should be penalized in ways that I don't think the government should have the power to do so. That is my personal opinion. I don't think that we're going to see a significant change. I don't think you're going to see economic growth. <laughs> I could pretty much guarantee that. Uh, personally, I don't think we're going to see the reduction in what they were trying to do, right? Like, this whole section was specifically dedicated to reducing the carbon footprint. All of that is predicated on whether or not they have buy-in from the American people and from the corporations. They didn't incentivize either one of those. In fact, most corporations will probably come off with some kind of a line like, it is cheaper for me to eat the cost in higher fines and taxes, pass that off to the consumer, and not go X money into debt trying to re-improve or even just improve their facilities to make them more energy efficient. That's what's going to happen. So remember that any cost you think you're saving in any capacity anywhere along this line, whether it be, oh, I've redone my windows, the government subsidized it, uh, and so I pay less in heating and cooling. Well, if these companies get taxed, then they pass that off to you. So really, did you save? Did it go up? Like, 
I don't know. That's that's one of the things I'd add to the watch list. Pay attention to that. But I, I really don't see that achieving any of its goals. Certainly don't see it achieving inflation reduction. Media accuracy. Uh, honestly, I'm going to give it a... I'll give it a two. Uh, two out of five because it's been covered and they've basically been covering the headliners and they're also basically just throwing out, hey, look at this, Democrats are doing this, and you know, then they spin around and then they talk about <laughs> voting in midterms. So I really think this is politically motivated. I don't see the media covering it accurate, ac accurately at all. So two, two out of five. Here's the questions I think that we should leave. Uh, how does any of this reduce inflation? I know that I've said that it doesn't, but like really ask yourself, how does it? And if you've got an answer and you, you think that it does, please comment below. I uh, would love to talk with you more about that. Also, you can PM me on our, on our well, usually Instagram is the one I respond to most. But yeah, uh, ask yourself, how does this reduce inflation? Because remember, all of this is predicated on the idea that it is reducing inflation and that it's reducing uh, carbon emissions. If it's not doing either of those things, why the hell are we passing this bill? So my question then is, how is it reducing inflation? Again, uh, how does any of this reduce carbon emissions? Those are the two questions. Uh, if you got an answer, give it to me. If not, uh, that moves us to the watch list. Uh, number one, hold the government accountable. Make them stop passing legislation that twists the facts of the matter and twists the legislation to their end goal and their agenda. I truly believe that's what Democrats did in this instance. They basically slapped a label on it that said, well, this is reducing inflation and is reducing our carbon footprint. Anytime someone says something, make them prove it. Like make them show you verifiable data that back this up. Not some, not just one study, like, like make them actually, or even just logically make them make that connection. Uh, here's the second part of the watch list. Government is manipulating the markets. Like they were fixing prices with the Medicare and negotiating that. And then they're punishing you for certain choices that you have. I'm not saying that, you know, well, again, the data doesn't really demonstrate that a syntax even, uh, winds up stopping people from doing the quote unquote negative behavior, right? Like a syntax would be something on like alcohol, tobacco. And in this case, apparently we're throwing carbon energy into the mix because it's cheaper and more efficient. So they're penalizing you for that. I don't know. I would put them on the watch list for that and say, you know, why, why the hell do you get to, why do you get to do that to me? Again, especially if you're not demonstrating that there's a thing. And, and if you think that, that they are great, um, then, you know, keep on going. But if not, I, I would definitely watch that. Uh, again, uh, it's limiting the capitalistic market. Like I mentioned at the start of this, when we improve the quality of life of people, it's not always a bad thing. We do need to think about the trade-offs. I would encourage you to really pay attention and keep an eye out to how are they manipulating the market. All of the wording here in the last episode uh, that covered the Medicare Medicaid fixing of the prices for like prescription drugs and things, including the one that I just read here, where the Secretary of uh, of Labor gets to just unilaterally decide these things. They're fixing the market the way that they want, and they're telling you that you know you need to live in such a way, or we're going to penalize you. Um, not even just a recommendation; like they're literally making it so some people cannot afford to do this. Period, and the middle and lower class, as always, are going to bear the brunt of this because they have the least fungible funds to be able to like recover. They have less in their savings accounts. They've got less liquidatable assets, etc. So they're going to feel inflation and recession the hardest, but everybody feels it. So again, it's not always bad, but definitely keep an eye out. And the third thing here, uh, watch for empty platitudes and virtue signals. 
because I, I personally really think that's a lot of what's going on here because the Democrats basically slapped climate change and inflation reduction on the bills and then said, oh, well, you, you're a science denier. You, you hate blank if you know you have an issue with this bill. Well, we specifically made it so that we're going to be working with impoverished communities. They don't have to show that they're helping impoverished communities. They just slapped it on there. And so you hate impoverished communities if you don't believe that. Watch for those types of platitudes and virtue signals, uh, especially as they get pressed on uh, why they're doing these things. Like uh, Jean-Pierre, the press secretary for uh, the Biden administration, uh, she tends to really fall back on we already answered this and then doesn't answer the question and she never answered the question and she also tends to fall back on like kind of like these personal attacks like well you know we believe in democracy we believe in clean energy like these types of things they don't justify the bills watch for that okay remember that our government is of the people for the people and by the people they are not above us you should expect service from these congressional members and you should demand transparency. Tune in next week so I can help you hold them accountable to being transparent. Remember, you can find Between the Liars on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media to stay updated when we have random changes like this. Mostly goes out on Twitter. If you enjoy this show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review and those follows. Love to see you live. Comment below. Catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now.